Good morning, Harbor Church. Wow, that's really a lot better than the first week. And not that I'm holding that against you or anything, but uh, thank you. That's, uh, let me just quickly say this, that uh, a few of you asked a very simple yet profound question after last week's sermon, and I want to answer that quickly. And the question was, who are you, and what are you doing up here? And so I, I think we took it for granted a little bit that some of you know that I'm vicariously part of this church through a couple different means. One, in 2012, while this church is part of the Harbor Church Network, they called Campus Outreach, of which I was uh, directing and am directing to be like another plant, another church plant. And so I came with a team of six folks. It's grown to about 12. We minister at Point Loma, and a lot of those students come here. But um, they're actually, I think most of them are gone home now this morning. And then we're also at, at um, UCSD and San Diego State. And the UCSD and San Diego State students go to Redeemer Church. And um, I'm thrilled that um, my dear friend and colleague Jonathan is, is getting to uh, serve you as well through communion here in a little bit at Redeemer. The second is that I had the privilege of starting uh, Vision Pathways here in San Diego, in which you guys have taken to uh, another, another level. I'm so very thankful for the partnership. So that's a little bit of who I am. Moving on into more uh, significant things. Uh, and let me just simply say thank you. Some of you have been so kind in writing notes and reaching out to me and, and in the last few weeks, and it's just been such a, a, a ministry to me just to be here with you and this morning is no different. I feel very rocked by the things that I've been thinking and meditating God's brought to my mind and heart. So, so let's jump in. We're in a series uh, called Waiting for Christmas, as you've heard. This is the Advent season, the coming of Christ, the time in which we celebrate Jesus' coming on to, into this world, kind of breaking through the waiting and breaking through the silence. And we've been talking about this theme called uh, on waiting, and we've recognized in week one um, that waiting is a very difficult reality, that for many of us, you're asking the question, God, what are you up to uh, when you cause us to wait? Like, um, what's that up to? And we've been interweaving this theme with Luke 1 and the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, if you don't know, were John the Baptist's parents. And before John the Baptist entered into the world, uh, they were very old and they were barren. And we recognize that in their waiting, somehow God got them out of the center of them, and he turned their waiting to worship. And that's what we talked about week one. The second week, we talked about silence. And oftentimes, waiting is accompanied, unfortunately, with a sense in which not only are we waiting on God, but God seems eerily silent. And what's he up to when we uh, don't hear from him? And we talked about that when God is silent, he's strengthening other spiritual senses, like he's beginning to help us to, to hear in ways that we never thought we could hear, see in ways we could not see. He begins to speak in ways that we had no idea that he would speak. And then this week, we want to turn our attentions, continuing in the story of Ze Zechariah and Elizabeth, but we want to turn our attention specifically to Elizabeth. Um, Zechariah's is kind of main squeeze, if you would. His old lady, as I shared, um, uh, pun intended was old. And so let's uh, jump in. And a quick reminder, a few weeks ago, we also shared that there's a, a couple uh, nuggets or maybe a keys to unlock some of the amazing realities of scriptures. And this is from a guy named Robert Alter. He's a, a, a Jewish scholar. And he says this, that in order to, that one of the ways we find like gems in the scripture, one is note 
that when the author of the text turns the storyline from narrative to dialogue, he's trying to emphasize something, okay? You ever gotten that text message that's in all caps, and you're wondering, like, why is this person yelling at me, right? Like, well, that's kind of what's happening when an, when an author kind of goes from, from simply saying, like, this is the story, and then a conversation starts, a dialogue begins. And then the second kind of um, key to unlocking some of the amazing realities and the gems of Scripture is notice that when a character is introduced, listen carefully to the first words out of the, that character's mouth because you learn a lot about who they are, their story, the, what God is doing in and through their lives, okay? So let's uh, keep that in mind as we read from Luke chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days... He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. That the Lord has done this for me, she says. The first words out of her mouth are what? The Lord. The Lord has done this for me. So what do we learn about her? What do we learn about the dialogue? What do we learn about what's bold and in all caps? Well, we learn that, that, that first of all, um, that the Lord has done this, that she knows, she trusts, she speaks of the Lord both personally and experientially. This is not just intellectual knowledge. This is incredibly experiential. This is incredibly personal, that the Lord has done this for me. For, for, for Elizabeth, the Lord was very real and very personal, and that he was truly um, has come into her life, that the Lord has taken away something uh, from her, that the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown favor and taken away disgrace. That idea of shown favor there is simply put that he looked upon her, right? The word there means this idea that, that God's eyes were actually upon her. And she's saying, the Lord, you have looked upon me. You have actually seen me. And when I thought there was silence and when I thought there was an absence and there was indifference, you actually looked upon me. Your eyes were on me. And we began to realize here that this was a massive, massive burden in her heart. Like that, the, the, that what she carried was so incredibly weighty that there was like years, maybe decades of disgrace in her life. And this disgrace went really deep into her heart and into her soul, that this pain and rejection that she felt was not just individualistic, but it was communal as well, okay? So she says, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people, that there was an individual, individualistic reality. He has shown his favor upon me and that there was a communal reality, that there, there was a disgrace. And so the, the one word that we could describe here, the one word that can really, in, in essence, kind of encapsulate her story and define her reality is the word shame. That, that her story was defined by this word shame. In, in the text, we see disgrace here. But that shame was her story, that most of her life was kind of marked with this, this shame. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about shame because uh, most of us, if you're you know, uh, if you've grown up in the United States, uh, you have grown up in, in a culture that has been marked by what I would just call guilt and innocence. Like this is a culture that's just the waters <laughs> that we swim in in this culture are kind of marked with guilt and innocence. And the thing that I want to contend this morning is that if, if guilt and shame are the waters that we swim in, right, of the culture that we've been grown up in, that um, shame is the saltiness of the taste of that water, okay? That it too is around us. It too is ubiquitous. That, that, that what I want to contend is that shame 
is a ubiquitous reality of the human experience, that you and I, whether you've grown up in the East Coast, the West Coast, the Western part of this planet, the, the Eastern part of this planet, that we experience shame, whether we realize it or not, whether we have a word for it or not, whether we can define it or not, um, that the reality is that um, shame is the saltiness of the waters of, the water, of, the, of, that, was, of that which we swim. So... Um, as one author describes shame, this is what um, Kurt Thompson says about shame. He says this, from our family at home to the one at church, from the bedroom to the boardroom, from school to work to play, from the art studio to the science and technology lab, it is the primal emotional pigment that colors the images of everything. Our bodies, our marriages, our politics, our successes and failures, our friends and enemies, especially the God of the Bible who may at times feel like both. It starts and surprisingly ends wars, only to start them again. It fuels injustice and creates our excuses for doing little, if anything, about it. It is a feature tool for motivating students, athletes, and employees. It enables us to conveniently remain separate from those we disagree with and who make us feel uncomfortable while keeping to those who will only tell us what we want to hear, right? That shame is a ubiquitous reality of the human existence. Like, let me, uh, before I go further... Let me kind of define this both from a, a, a Christian psychologist perspective as well as a few other uh, angles, okay? So um, this is Ed Welch, a Christian psychologist, and this is his definition. I've, I found it to be very, very helpful. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated, Right? Did you catch that? That shame is this deep sense uh, that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, that you feel exposed and humiliated. In the text, Elizabeth is experiencing this great amount of disgrace and shame, primarily not because of stuff she did, but things done to her, and, and namely the things that were associated with her, namely her infertility. Like the fact that she could not have a, a children were probably the, the it was the storyline of her story up until this point. The author goes on to write, and it's not going to come up in the slide, but he says, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human, or you uh, were associated with something less than human, and there are witnesses, <laughs> that there are witnesses to this reality. Another person who helps us define shame in this culture, and probably the person who has done more in the last decade to kind of bring this topic to the public square um, has been uh, Dr. Brene Brown. And her TED Talk, I believe, is top five in number of watched. Um, I've watched it 20 times myself, so um, I can't imagine. It's, I think it's like four million views or something like that. But this is what she says in her definition of shame. She says that shame, um, it's the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. She goes on to explain this. And, and here, this is what she says. She says, sometimes when you do something bad, this is what guilt says in our life. You did bad, right? But shame goes a lot further, and it goes on to say, you are bad. You with me on that? Like, guilt says you did bad. Shame says you are bad. Another way of saying this is that when while guilt says, I made a mistake, shame goes further and says, I am a mistake. That's the a, a helpful definition of guilt. I'm sorry, shame. 
And this juxtaposed to this idea of guilt and innocence that uh, part of this world and, and much of the world that we live in is, um, is built on this shame, honor culture, right? That there's this, this, it's not just an individualistic reality, but it's a communal com, uh, cultural reality. Like that guilt and innocence cultures are intrinsically individualistic, while shame and honor cultures are intrinsically communal. That the reality, it's not that, that shame and honor cultures don't care about the individual, but they see individuals through the lens of the communal, right? And it's not that, in a sense, that the guilt and innocence don't care about com- communal, but you see the individual rise to the top. It's kind of your driving thought as an individual. Just another juxtaposition that might help you. That it's not that uh, shame cultures don't care about morality, but the definition of what is morally right and wrong is really defined on relationships, right? It's really defined on opinion, public opinion. It really is defined in what will others say, what will others think. That is really what ultimately kind of pushes morality to the service. Both guilt and innocence and honor and shame have, have dynamics that are the same, but they really are different. Let me make this a little bit more personal. I grew up in a multicultural <laughs> uh, environment. In other words, I had the uh, on, honor and the opportunity to kind of grow up in two cultures. My parents are from India. They grew up in India. I grew up um, in the States, my family and I. So, so for many of you, you're like, man, it must have been so cool to grow up having like your parents speak two different languages and, and getting to travel all over the world and and, uh, and, the, and the simple fact that, like, you get other cultures, and you might even get the Bible a little bit better, and, and you eat all, all, all kinds of different foods. And, like, and, you know, the question is, like, does your mom make Indian food? And it's like, well, yes, she does. And she's like, oh, it must be so nice. Well, let me just tell you, there's another side to this reality. And the other side of this reality is not only did I feel bad for the things that I was doing, I felt incredible amounts of dishonor and shame that I was bringing to my family, that my grades somehow were not just about me and my future and taking care of like myself, right? But somehow they were, uh, they were connected to my aunties and my uncles who live in India. Like, I don't know how that is, but like your grades reflected that far out in our conversations as a child. And it was, uh, it was like they were getting like um, faxes of my, you know, my, my report card or something like that. And um, they could have been, I have no idea. And, um, but not only that, it was the people I was associated with would bring great amounts of shame. So friends that I brought home, like girls that I brought home, like the color of the person that I married would have an impact. And so these things began to deeply impact not just the things I was doing, uh, but who I, who I thought myself to be. And I, I'm sorry, friends, but all the amount of Indian food in the world uh, didn't take away both my guilt and my shame. I remember as a child, and we grew up in a guilt uh, innocence culture, stealing a toy from a friend and being eaten up from the inside out, right? And I also remember as a child the great amount of embarrassment <laughs> to report cards and to friends and to girlfriends and all those other things that just kind of laid there in front of my parents kind of going, not sure how they're going to receive this. Well, enough of my cathartic uh, free counseling through the act of preaching. Let me share, um, <laughs> sorry, yeah, let me share a quote from a more tragic story, I guess, if you would. <laughs> but in all seriousness, like um, the Boston Massacre, right, 2013, and I'm gonna probably uh, not do a great job with this, uh, um, with this family name, but um, <laughs> the uncle 
of the two, uh, at that time, suspects came on the news, and this was his response. He says, you put uh, a shame on our entire family. This family, this Russian family, you put shame on the entire Chechen ethnicity. Everyone now puts the shame on the entire ethnicity. You see, as most Americans, like, we felt the, the loss of safety, and we felt the sadness of the loss of individuals. This man was bemoaning the brokenness and the shame that the whole culture was experiencing. You get to understand the, uh, the ubiquitous uh, reality of the human existence. Um, this is why Elizabeth said, not only have you looked upon me as an individual, but you have taken away my disgrace among my people. And the beautiful thing, my friend, is that another angle in which we begin to see the definition of shame is through the Bible, because the Bible was not just written in a shame-based culture, but the, the Bible has a lot to say about this. And the first thing that we learn about shame is from Genesis chapter 2. And in, in essence, we learn where shame comes from simply through the creation account. That you and I were created, in a sense, for a life that was absent of shame. So the culmination of the creation uh, account, Genesis 1 and 2, ends with this. It says, and the man and, and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The shame was not how we were built, right? Like, it, we were not intended to experience shame. How many of you have ever used an iPhone as a hammer? It was never intended to be a hammer. And you and I were never intended to experience shame, right? It's not what we were made for. It's not what we were built for. It's not who we were made to be. That the Bible has a lot to say, and the first thing that it has to say is that we were created for a life absent of shame, that he created us, that God's intent was incredible amounts of honor and royalty and like glory given to us as his created beings. And yet we know that as sin entered the earth and sin entered the world, it brought about shame. Um, it brought about a great level of uh, brokenness here. And, and this idea of nakedness, my friends, is not just a physical reality, is it? That this is emotional nakedness. This is spiritual nakedness. This is relational vulnerability and nakedness. And I would just contend that the most primal experience that we have in our lives isn't as much guilt-oriented as it is shame-oriented, right? The most primal experience that we have as little children are not based on guilt, but they're really based on shame. And let me explain this from my, at that time, I think... 10-month-old, right? My little uh, Tyus, we were had a yard, and, and I remember him crawling. He wasn't able to walk at this time. He's just crawling towards what looked like candy, and it was actually dog dung, right? Like, and I remember <laughs> seeing this happen and going, no, stop, stop. And I ran out there and picked him up. And, and, and this is what he did. He burst out into tears, and he wouldn't look at me right? He couldn't look at me because what he was experiencing in his reality was not guilt. He didn't know what was wrong. He didn't have any clue of right, of right and wrong here, no morality here, but it was in complete amounts of shame. It's also interesting here that the fact that he wouldn't look at me, um, there's a, in Thailand, there's a word for shame. And this word really literally means like ripping one's face off as to appear ugly, right? That this idea of shame is ubiquitous to our human existence. Let me read uh, from The Soul of Shame. Um, he says this, uh, Kurt Thomas says, when you experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because this prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. 
However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feelings, the gaze of the other, ironically, simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, we do not necessarily realize this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. But indeed, this dance between hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose. We feel shame, and then we feel shame for feeling shame. It begets itself. Anyone else can relate to that? Um, you're in good company. I can so relate to that. So what does this mean practically? For some of you, like, I, I'm, you, you know, like, the, the, the still is waters that I'm not familiar with, even though you're saying I might swim in it and the salt, and the, the taste might be salty. Well, let me um, go back to Brene Brown, and she is incredibly helpful because in her research, she gives these descriptors, right, from real life. And I'm just going to read these to you. They're not going to come up. But this is how she defines this from real people in their real lives. She says, shame is getting laid off and having to tell my pregnant wife. Shame is having someone tell me, what do you do when I'm not pregnant? Shame is hiding the fact that I'm in recovery. Shame is raging at my kids. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of the client. Shame is not making partner. Shame is my husband leaving me for my next door neighbor. Shame is my wife. asking me for a divorce and telling me she wants children, but not with me. Shame is my DUI. Shame is infertility. Shame is telling my fiance that my dad lives in France when in fact he's in prison. Shame is internet porn. Shame is flunking out of school twice. Shame is hearing my parents fight through the walls and wondering if I'm the only one who feels this afraid. Friends, shame is a ubiquitous reality to the brokenness of the world that we live in. So what do we do with our shame? Like, how do we handle this? Like, where do we go with our shame? Well, we go where our forefather and foremother, Adam and Eve, went. We seek to cover ourselves, right? And I would add, uh, in a a pathetic way, right? In some incredibly pathetic ways that don't leave us covered at all. So we try to cover ourselves by working out really, really, Uh, for hours. We try to cover ourselves by staying in shape. We try to cover ourselves by talking about our victories and less about our sorrows. We try to cover ourselves by buying a bunch of stuff and filling our homes with just stuff, right? Like we try to cover ourselves by working really hard and being successful in a career. We try to cover ourselves from jumping from one relational circle to another, maybe one church to another, maybe one friend group or group to another. We cover ourselves by our resumes. We cover ourselves by our 501c3s. We cover ourselves by our beautiful homes, seeking to marry beautiful people. We cover ourselves by scolding our children, less based on their disobedience and much more based on their behavior and how it reflects us. Or if you're like me, we try to cover ourselves through working really hard at ministry and um, seeking to look really, really good. The problem, my friends, is that it doesn't do its job. Like covering ourselves by ourselves is pathetic coverings. Um, You you know what I found to be the most um, telling shaming reality that I've seen in a very long time? It's social media, right? Social media, and in and of itself, by, by the way, none of these things are evil, right? Like ministry's not evil, children aren't evil, careers aren't evil, stuff isn't evil, social media isn't intended to be evil. But I will say this, that there is, uh, <laughs> the social media is telling the most 
obvious realities of both our shame and our pathetic coverings, okay? Like, so the barrage of, of political, like, speak back and forth is, is shaming, isn't it? what we're seeking to do. We're shaming people that don't believe the same things we believe. Well, and the other coverings are usually the things that we post about ourselves, trying to sow fig leaves for ourselves, and the reality is they don't work. Um, Let me just give you a couple thoughts on the world's definition of shame and the world's uh, solution, if you would. But first, let me be really clear. I am deeply appreciative of how God has moved through uh, secular psychology and wisdom to bring this topic to the surface. I think it's very, very important. I think it's so insightful, especially for the world that I live in. I had a staff person say to me recently, Gijo, when I talk about sin to college students, people's eyes glaze over. The minute I bring up shame, their eyes are wide open and they want to keep talking and keep talking and keep talking. Because they're beginning to realize that, especially in a pluralistic and, and, you know, society where what's right for you is right for you and wrong for you is wrong for you. The idea of guilt doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but the idea of shame is really experienced. And so um, the reality is that that's around us. And so I'm very, very thankful uh, for some of these thoughts. But the world's thoughts uh, into the problem of shame, while being insightful and wise, are incredibly shallow and insufficient for both explaining the problem and offering a solution, okay? Here's th- thoughts. that The world's thoughts, even though they're insightful, are incredibly shallow and incredibly insufficient for both explaining the problem and offering a solution. Jesus does both. Jesus explains the f- problem a lot deeper than the world does. And he also provides a solution. So let's talk about that. First, the problem. Most of the conversation, right, most of the definition, most of the explaining of shame is based on feeling and emotion, okay? It's based on a subjective reality. Um, The the reality, my friends, is that um, Jesus goes a lot further, and he doesn't just talk about shame as a feeling and an emotion. He talks about shame as a fact. The fact is that you and I have not just experienced shame, but we have been shameful. That you and I have done things that are incredibly shameful in, in the presence of God and many others. That the problem is defined as a feeling and an emotion, and the fact is that shame is a reality. And it's a reality that you and I have brought upon ourselves. We have done shameful things. We have brought dishonor to ourselves, to our families, and to God's name itself, right? That we have fallen short of the glory of God is what it says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That shame isn't just a feeling, it's a fact. And you and I have done shameful things. Claiming to be wise, Romans 1, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. God said, I want glory upon my children. We exchanged that and said, no, no, we want to find glory ourselves in a shameful way. And we have exchanged that glory for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, Romans 1. So the problem is not just a feeling, but it's a fact. The solution that the world has to offer are mainly kind of in two ways. Be vulnerable and be verbally affirming, namely of yourself, right? That the solution that the world gives I do think it's, it's a good starting point, my friends. I just don't think it's sufficient. That the, the solution is twofold. It's one, be vulnerable, and then be verbally positive to yourself. Being vulnerable means, like, confess your sins. That this is what we get in the Christian community. It says, you know, be vulnerable. And yet, just to be vulnerable itself is, in a sense, just to be acknowledging your already uh, 
clear, obvious sense of nakedness. In a lot of ways, if you're just vulnerable, you might leave yourself a little bit more exposed and feeling even more shameful. Now, this idea of verbal positivity, I do believe it's very important. But the thing that I want to say to you on verbal, this idea of being positive is consider the source, right? Consider the source of who's speaking. When you're called to tell yourself about great things about yourself, consider the source. <laughs> Let me explain this to you in a, in a better way. I'm going to go home this afternoon and I'm going to say, wife, how did I do? And, and she's going to say, husband, you did a wonderful job. You're a great communicator. You are awesome. And I want to say, wife, I'm so thankful for you. But deep down inside, this is what I'm thinking. She's my wife. She's supposed to tell me these things, right? Now, juxtapose that with this afternoon, I come home and I get a phone call from, let's say, Tim Keller, right? And um, as Chad calls him, he's the fourth person of the Trinity. And so he calls, he says, Gijo, you don't know me. And I said, uh, yes, I do. And uh, I, I hear your voice and I recognize you. Uh, how are you, Tim? And he says, I've been listening to your messages and I just want you to know, I think you're an amazing communicator. Do you know what I'd be tempted to do? I'd be tempted to put that on speaker and say, can you repeat that to me four or five more times? And my wife would be saying, husband, I told you that over and over, and it wasn't sufficient. Why? Consider the source. You're supposed to tell me those things, right? Now, I'm talking about a wonderful wife. I'm not talking about in a pathetic sinner like me, <laughs> speaking to myself about me. The problem with verbal... Uh, proclamation is it's not anchored in anything but a sinful, shame-filled person. That the reality is that, um, friends, like um, the source matters. You and I know that the self-talk is so incredibly insufficient because the one talking has done more harm and has brought more shame into my own life, me. As much as things have been done to me, my friends, I have done far worse as much as guilt has been around me, I have been far more guilty. That positive self-talk doesn't work because you are speaking to yourself. You're a terrible savior and you're full of guilt and shame. Um, the reality is um, we might um, just be getting part of the gospel, okay? Let me just say this, that um, if you just get that the, you are justified for your sins, right? If you just get that you're forgiven, right? It's only part of the good news. There's so much, great, there's so much greater news out there, right? So in other words, as a friend said to me, he said, the gospel is good news to know that a judge has declared me innocent, and yet I still feel like the scum of the earth. What's going on here? <laughs> and to him and to me, I would say, friends, the one who has formed you has not only forgiven you, but is now fond of you. You with me? The one who has formed you has not only forgiven you, he is fond of you. He's not just a judge that declares us innocent. He's a father, right, who says, I cover your shame. I don't just take away your guilt. I cover your shame from head to toe. We see in the Christmas story that there's a story of God. He has looked upon us. He has seen us. He has seen us both in our guilt and in our shame. He has seen our condition. The gospel is amazingly um, great news to forgive us of our sins and the guilt being removed through a baby. And yet it's even greater news, my friends, to know that our shame is covered, that we no longer need to sow fig leaves to cover ourselves because there was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
And that baby became a man and became stripped naked in shame so that you and I would not just be forgiven but covered. Consider him. Let me just leave you with a picture, emphasize that statement, and then and one last picture. That last picture is communion, my friends. We're going there. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I shared a second ago that, that my son, who was shamed at the ripe age of 10 months, uh, this primal experience that he had of shame, uh, that he couldn't even look at me. Remember that? Well, the reality is that the reason he couldn't look at me is because I want to finish this picture to you. When I grabbed him, he didn't look at me, but he clinged to me. So his face was right here, crying, not knowing why, didn't have no clue why he was guilty, right? But clinging to my, to my neck. Uh, and I just thought, that is the picture in which Jesus welcomes us. Not just that you're forgiven, but that you are clothed. Friends, the one who has formed you, has forgiven you, is fond of you. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, a familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him, um, we held him in low esteem. Like one who, whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. My friends, the one who we have turned our backs on, the one that we have held in low esteem holds us in high regards. He not just forgives us, he restores to us the glory that was intended in a greater way. He brings us close and he invites us to cling to him. Let me go to prayer and we will experience communion together. Jesus, thank you that you have not just created us, you've not just dealt with our guilt, but you have taken away our shame, that you have not just declared us righteous, but you've come off the throne as a father lovingly clinging to your children, that you are fond of us. So God, I I can only say these things. You're the only one who can impress these things onto our hearts and into our lives through faith. And so would you gift this morning the, the gift of faith, not just to intellectually assent to these thoughts and these realities, but to deeply, deeply, profoundly, personally experience you uh, and trust you and know these things to be true in the depths of our heart. Would you come take our waiting and turn it into worship? Would you speak through our silence? Would you cover us in our shame? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.